Welcome to Grace and 30 on WERALP, Arlington 96.7 FM. This is Ed Mellick, and I'll be your host for tonight's program. Imagine going on a mission trip for one month to a place like Thailand to work with young women rescued from the sex trade, or to Honduras to work with children in an orphanage. Now imagine doing that in 11 countries back-to-back for 11 months. Today we're hosting Jade Zaharoff, a young woman who felt called to do just that in 2014 as part of something called the World Race. According to their website, the World Race is a journey to serve the least of these while embedded in real and raw community. It's a unique mission trip that challenges young adults to abandon their worldly possessions and a traditional lifestyle in exchange for an understanding that it's not about them, it's about the kingdom. Jay joins us to talk about her world race experiences, as well as work she did with Syrian refugees in 2016 after they landed on the shores of Greece. Jade, welcome to Grace and 30. Thank you so much for having me. I have to say that when I hear about something like the world race, I'm really impressed and amazed. Um, What draws a young person to do something like this, to go somewhere not just for a week or for a month, but to give up nearly a year of your life and to be uprooted each month? Uh, What drew me initially is the fact that it's not a mission trip to one particular location uh, to do one type of ministry. Um, I went on my first mission trip when I was in high school. It was a two-week mission trip to Mexico. Um, And after that trip, I knew that I wanted to go abroad again in the future. Uh, When I was in college, I started to feel like God was putting missions on my heart again. Uh, When I started looking into different organizations, I felt drawn to so many different places and different types of work that nothing in particular felt right in what God was calling me to. Uh, So it wasn't until I heard about the world race that I knew that that was exactly what God was calling me to. And what about some of the other people that you were in the field with? What were were their reasons? For most people, it's that sense of adventure that draws people in. It's the fact that it's a little radical. Um, You're giving up your worldly possessions and living out of a backpack for 11 months straight. Um, And that's something that not many people get to experience in their lifetimes. There's definitely that that draw to that. Um, The majority of world racers have just graduated college or have been in the workforce um, and have realized that there is more than the nine to five work life and chasing the American dream. Um, Not to bash the nine to five, I'm in that now, and uh, truly believe that the workforce is also a mission field. Um, But there's definitely that appeal with the world race of exploring what else God has for us. Yeah, it's funny you say a little (laughs) radical. To me, it's a lot radical. (laughs) Why don't you spend a few minutes and kind of give us a snapshot of the world race? I know that it's managed by another company. Um, Tell us how the trips are funded, uh, how you raise money, what you do in each country. Just kind of give us a a round out. Sure. So Adventures and Missions is the overall umbrella organization that has a number of different types of trips that they do for high schoolers, young adults, families. Um, and they go all over the world. Uh, So their most popular trip is the World Race, which is for young adults uh, 21 to 35. Um, And so when you decide that you wanna go on the World Race, um, you go on their website and you look at the different options they have for uh, routes that you can go on. So typically um, there might be four to six options of different routes you can take. Um, And so you would be able to choose which countries you were going to based on the route that is being offered. So every month looks a little different. Um, the World Race partners with kingdom-focused organizations that really just need manpower. Um, that was one thing I really admired about the race. Um, as racers, we didn't come in to an organization with our own agenda. And we really came in um, to come alongside the organization to help them further achieve their mission and the impact that they're having in their community. Yeah, I want to mm-hmm. read the list of countries you went to. It was Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, 
Costa Rica, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Malaysia, Philippines, South Africa, and Swaziland. That's <laughs> that's an impressive list. I understand too. You came home partway through one of the months. You were sick, and so mm-hmm. you missed uh, half of Cambodia and all of Malaysia. Mm-hmm. But you still went back, which is pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. That was about halfway through the trip, or yeah, it was uh, month seven and eight. Um, I had gotten sick and um, tried to write it out. I'd seen a number of different doctors in different countries, and just ultimately decided that I needed to come back home to get treated, that I could really make the most of my time that I had left um, on the field. Um, I was so glad that I did. I came back. I was back to my normal energy levels and was really able to enjoy the last part of the race. Yeah, I have to believe some people, if they get sick and go home, they may not want to return. They might get home and kind of get comfortable Mm -hmm. and... Yeah, it was it was mentally tough. We also had, we had a few people on our squad that had to go home for different medical reasons, but luckily everyone was able to come back that left. So. Yeah, when you quoted some of the the statistics, I think it was you lost four or five people in the first few months mm-hmm. out, out, of, out of 50 yeah out of 50 that's um, not bad so yeah it, there were a few people that just realized this wasn't you know kind of what they thought it was um, and realized it just wasn't best for them to stay but for the most part you know we had the majority of our group till the end so it was great so tell us what did you do each month i mean some months you actually worked with the local community people uh, other months you did different things give us sort of a snapshot for for what month by month you were doing so, yeah, we covered a very broad spectrum of the different types of work that we're doing. In Honduras and Swaziland, we we're working at an orphanage. Um, in Nicaragua, I was doing construction work for the month. In Laos, we were teaching English. In Thailand, we were doing bar ministry. Um, so every month looks very different. Um, we traveled to each of the 11 countries as a squad, but then once you get there, you're, you divide in your teams and you work with different organizations. Um, so even you know what you're doing could be very different from another team that's still on your squad. Um, so every month looks very different. So what is a bar ministry? <laughs> so when we were in Thailand, we were working in the red light district down on Bangla Road, which is very popular for tourists. Um, there says street line with bars. And so we went in and Um, Just try to form relationships with the women that were working in the bars, you know, that are typically there for men to purchase for the night. And so we were there really just to give them a break from having to have conversations with the men that obviously do not have the best intentions. And so we were able to, for the month, build relationships with the women that we'd see there night after night. And it was something that they really looked forward to um, getting to spend time with us. Tell us about the fundraising involved, mm-hmm. um, how you fund a trip like this, and give us a little insight into, you know, you were roughing it out there, right? Tell mm-hmm. us about the conditions. Sure. Um, so to start with fundraising, uh, the amount that we had to raise was $16,200, uh, which was definitely intimidating. I remember first looking at that number when I had first started researching and um, saw that number and just had that thought, that is way too much uh, money for me to raise. There's no way that I'd be able to do that. Um, and actually put the world race kind of on the back burner for a little while, for a couple weeks. Um, but I just felt that tug that kept drawing me back um, to the world race. And so I finally realized that I just needed to hand that over to God to, uh, to trust him to be able to provide. And so we definitely saw that as a squad, trusting Uh, putting our trust that God was going to provide um, for us in that way financially was huge. Um, You know, I think for a young adult, that number seems impossible, but obviously to God, it's not. To him, it's nothing, you know. So to be able to, you know, show that, you know, if God is calling you to something, he will provide. And we definitely saw that on, on the race. 
So what did you do to fundraise? Did you send out an all points bulletin on Facebook and <laughs> things like that? Or? Yeah, I used I used a lot of different methods. Um, I started by sending out letters to my friends and family and um, got about half of the support um, that way. I definitely was nervous because I didn't have, I had a home church, but I uh, wasn't super plugged in. And so I felt a little bit at a disadvantage not having a church that I could go to and, and be able to fundraise that way. Um, but actually the company I work for now funded the other half of my trip. They were super supportive and God provided in a way that I never would have imagined that he would have provided. It's so. funny you're, you're telling me about fundraising. I'm reading a book called uh, Miracle on Voodoo Mountain about a young woman who moved to Haiti and just oh, wow. up and moved there completely. And she came home for a two-week trip and uh, someone just asked her to speak at his church and she was very nervous, and she got up, and she spoke for 10 minutes and sat down, and then she did a second service. And then they had a little table prepared for her, and you know, people just started coming up and giving her checks and chatting with her. And when she looked at the end, she had $39,000, and it just completely blew her mind. And she was able to do quite a bit with the, with the money when she got back to Haiti. Um, so similar type of story, which is really cool. I want to take a quick break and just remind people that we're talking to uh, Jade Zaharoff, a young woman who felt called to go on the world race back in 2014, an 11-month mission trip to 11 countries, and then to work with Syrian refugees in 2016 as they arrived on the shores of Greece. I'd like to spend some time talking about the highlights of the trip. Tell us one or two things that really moved your heart, that really were the, the things that you really look back on most fondly from the, the whole experience. Sure. Uh, so two of the um, stories that really stand out to me uh, were my, was my time in the orphanage, both in Honduras and Swaziland. Um, in Honduras, um, our team was matched with the orphanage for the month, and I was really excited about building relationships with the kids. Um, but actually, it started out, they needed help uh, in their kitchen. They needed they had one kitchen for all of the children in the orphanage, and so they needed help adding a countertop, extra space, extra cabinets, tile work. Um, and so I was able to help with that because I had a little bit of experience with that in the past. And so I had started with, with doing more construction, um, which I enjoyed, but definitely felt a little left out, not getting to spend as much time with the kids and seeing some of my teammates form those bonds. Um, and so about a week in, um, there was this little boy named Luis. He was eight years old, and he really um, just caught my attention. One day we were getting in the truck to go home, and he opened the passenger side of the truck door for me and insisted that I sit in the front. So I got in, he closed the door for me, and um, after that he was just my, you know, my best little friend there. You were inseparable. Yeah, he would, uh, we'd walk down to the store every day, and he'd carry my backpack for me, and just a very sweet boy. And um, he didn't speak much English, and I didn't speak a lot of Spanish, um, but that really didn't get in the way. Um, so that was month two of the race, and it was definitely hard to say goodbye to him. <laughs> yeah, a lot of tears when you left. <laughs> yeah, a lot of tears. That was um, definitely a hard, hard place to leave for me. Um, and then a similar experience in Swaziland too. Um, another boy, Nick, um, and I, had, we were assigned to be buddies, um, but it was definitely a God thing and how we were matched. He was a runner and I'm an avid runner. And so every morning we would go with a group before school started and we'd go for our run in the morning. Um, and he was also eight years old and we just hit it off. And what God really taught me through those two experiences was just how much God loves us. Um, I've been told by a friend um, that has children, she said, you know, once you have kids, you understand God's love for us in a whole new way when you have a yeah. child of your own. And I don't have children of my own, but having that time with Luis and Nicholas, I really felt like I had a better understanding of how God loves me and just how I felt about them and how they returned that love. Yeah, to it's, me. it's totally true. 
Do, do you still stay in touch with Nicholas now? I do. Yeah, I actually um, have the opportunity to sponsor him. Um, and so we write letters back and forth. And it was great to be able to send photos of us that I had from the race. And I'll usually include those in the letters that I send to him. So. Yeah, it's funny, going back to, could you speak with Nicholas, communicate with him better than Luis? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he could speak some English. Um, it wasn't his first you know, first language, but he spoke better English. So. I have a, a friend who went on a trip to Brazil to work in a dump, to, bring, to build a water supply to the dump. And she came home and spoke to the Reston Bible congregation, and, and she said, we, we couldn't communicate with each other, and it's amazing how you can't hurt people when you can't communicate with them. All mm-hmm. you can do is go through gestures of love, serving one another and spending time with another and enjoying each other. So it's that's probably mm-hmm. what happened with you and Luis. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about takeaways and lessons. I mean, what are the really the biggest takeaways and lessons that you learned from this 11-month trip? Yeah, I would say uh, first and foremost that God definitely calls us out of our comfort zones. Um, you know, going abroad for 11 months, living out of a backpack, that was something that definitely was not within my comfort zone. Um, but really in that type of environment, that was really the only way that I was going to be able for me to learn certain lessons that God wanted to teach me, to do certain things like evangelism um, that I never would have done if I had just stayed, you know, in my current environment. Street evangelism, we did that in Guatemala, and that was probably one of the things I was most nervous about and the most out of my comfort zone. But then, you know, found out that people actually appreciated, you know, you asking them if they want prayer. And um, so it was definitely just being in a different environment. God was able to move in so many different ways, and it was just easier for us to see how he was moving, just being in that different environment. It sounds like that was lesson two is don't assume people don't want to hear <laughs> mm-hmm. the gospel message, right? Yeah, that's something that is just kind of my natural tendency to think that people don't want to hear about Jesus. Um, and so Guatemala, month one, it was clear that was why we were doing evangelism and kind of getting out of our comfort zones and realizing that people want to hear about Jesus. They appreciate when you ask them if they can, you know, if we can pray for them. They welcomed us into our homes. They would take time out of their day. They'd offer us food things that I would never imagine that people would appreciate us doing. Yeah, I don't think I've ever offered to pray for something if they're Mm -hmm. sick, especially when someone is having a health problem or they have a relative who's sick. I mean, they can be from any background, uh, agnostic, Mm -hmm. atheist, whatever, but if someone's sick with cancer or something and you say, hey, I'm going to pray for them, they really, really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Any other lessons from the trip? Yeah, I think also just being open to how God wants to use you. For me, you know, I felt called to go overseas um, and to serve in that way, but I also know that God doesn't call everyone overseas. You know, there are opportunities in your own community where you can serve others and share the love of Christ. And also just knowing that God gives you the grace to do those things when you go out of your comfort zone. I love the the verse Hebrews 13:9 um, that talks about your strength coming from God's grace. You know, there were so many things on the world race that I was very nervous to do um, and things that I felt that I wouldn't be adequate enough um, when I started comparing myself to other people that were also going on the race. Um, and just looking at my past experience just felt like I wasn't going to be good enough. But God definitely taught me on the race that, you know, he walked that that race right alongside with me and provided really everything that I needed to do, all the different types of ministry that we did. Um, so definitely trusting that, you know, if he's calling you to something that it's for a reason and he won't leave you or forsake you during that time. 
I also like Hebrews twelve fifteen. See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that's what you were basically extending by going overseas, which is kind of a really good segue into the work you did uh, with the Syrian refugees. Give us a quick snapshot of that. I know you were kind of you were right in Greece. People were coming onto the shore on the boats, and you were sort of in a, a processing group, not right on the shore, but nearby. Tell us, you know, what happened as people came in, what you did with them, where they went. Sure, yes. So we were in a transition camp, um, and so we were about a mile up the road from the beach. Um, So we did have the opportunity to go down to the beach one day and actually see the boats coming across um, from Turkey. Um, So it was was very difficult to see the boats coming over. We were there in January. The conditions of, you know, the water was very rough. It's freezing cold. The boats that they're coming over on are just little rubber um, boats packed with 60-plus people when they're really meant for maybe 20 to 30 um, and so you see the boats come over, and um, we weren't actually working down at the beach, but just seeing the people come in and seeing the joy of a boat landing on the beach was incredible. Um, you know, it's really just the first part of their journey, but it's one of the most dangerous parts, and to see the joy and relief that these families feel and express when they come across um, and actually reach the beach was incredible. Um, so from the beach, they would take, uh, there were vans, take them up to our camp at Scala, Sycaminius, And it was a transition camp. So they would come into camp. We'd give them water, bananas, kind of just a little snack to hold them over. Um, And so from there, they were able to take a bus to a more concrete camp called Morias, which is actually an old prison. But there they were able to um, officially get processed. They needed their passport, and often they'd have to wait a couple days up to a couple of weeks at Morias camp. And from there, they could take the ferry to Athens. Um, So it's quite the process. Um, so at our transition camp, um, we were able to provide them with Wi-Fi so they could call their families back home and let them know that they made it, um, which was pretty incredible. I got to Skype with a young man's family back home. He was you know, sharing the news with them that they had made it safely. Um, and so to see just that joy that they shared was, was pretty incredible. Yeah, I have to assume it's sort of a combination of joy getting away from hardship and troubles, but also some heartbreak because they're away from relatives that are, mm-hmm. that are still behind. What are some of the lessons you learned from that, in addition to what you learn in the world race? I mean, it's there's sort of a lot of opinions about the refugees and a lot of angst and, and paranoia. Uh, what were some of the things you learned about these people when you worked with them? Well, you really, the first and foremost, you see how desperate things have to be um, you know, for them to leave their home to come across and to put them voluntarily put themselves in a position, um, you know, where they're putting their families at risk by crossing, you know, in these boats. But to them, the water is safer than the land that they're fleeing. Um, so you really realize how desperate the situation is where they're fleeing and that it's really not an option for them. They really have no choice but to leave. It was also very eye-opening to see just how grateful these people were to see the volunteers like us. I had a few questions, you know, why are you here? And um, they just couldn't believe that I would have given a job up in America to come help them. Um, And so very grateful. They never took more than they needed. I, you know, would think if I was in that position, I'd be taking water and extra bananas and just be prepared. And if they already had water on them, they wouldn't take more than they needed. Um, So just the kindest people, they're always thinking about the people around them 
coming into the camp, I'd be greeted by grandmothers who would kiss my cheeks when they entered. <laughs> and um, so just such friendly fa- you know, faces and families. And we actually had one um, woman who had her four-day-old baby with her, too. Um, and so she clearly had the baby when they were in Turkey waiting to take the boat over. Um, and so you just, it's hard to imagine and comprehend what they've been through, but that they still find joy in the process and um, try to make the most of kind of the situation they're in. I'm assuming it's not just boatloads of terrorists coming over. It's <laughs> no. it's families, people that are desperate to to, mm-hmm. to, to go somewhere free from war yeah, and, and build a new life. Yeah, the media likes to show the pictures of, you know, just a boat full of men. Um, and the reason why you see pictures of that is because oftentimes they'll send the women and children on the first boat. And once they see that the boat makes it safely across, they'll send the second boat with the men. But the media likes to show just the photos of the men. So, yeah, I the people that I met were some of the kindest people that I've ever met. And you also find out that they're, these are people are educated. They're bankers and lawyers. They're professionals and, you know, very smart people. And the sad thing is you realize that the poor people and the uneducated people oftentimes can't even afford to make the journey across. It's so expensive. Um, you know, most families are spending their entire life savings just to take bring their whole family across. And so kind of realizing that it's it's heartbreaking to see how the media actually portrays it. Yeah, there was a sad story on the uh, the news recently where um, they were showing people that were left over in Syria and Aleppo. And some of them were fleeing and some of them were just so poor and just left behind. And, they, and I think some of the orphans were sort of issuing a plea over social media that, you know, we're, we're left behind here. This, this may be our, our last communications. And it's just it's heartbreaking when you see these things. So when they brought people into these camps, they sent them into places all around Europe, correct? Mm-hmm. Germany. Yeah, for Germany is the main one. Um, but really, I mean, it was at the time we were there, it was changing. New countries were deciding that they couldn't take any more in. Germany was the big one, though, and we actually met um, a group from Germany who was working in a boys' home that was taking um, orphans that had come over from Syria, and uh, they were saying how, you know, because when we were in the, the camps, we weren't allowed to openly spread the gospel. If someone asked, yes, you know, why we were there, we could share our beliefs, um, but our job really was just to help them and provide, you know, for their basic needs. Um, And so in talking with this group from Germany, they talked about how the boys, you know, they're able to share the gospel in that boys' home, and the boys will say how they knew that the volunteers in the camps were Christians, even though we couldn't openly say it. They just, they would tell, you know, their leaders in in Germany um, that, you know, we just knew that there was something different about them, and we want what they have. Um, And so it was really neat to hear that, although we couldn't see firsthand the gospel being shared, but knowing that it, we were still having an impact and that the seeds were being planted at that point. And then once I got to Germany, you know, this group in the in the boys' home was able to continue them on and, and knowing the Lord. Yeah, I'm glad you shared that because you mentioned when we met and I was sort of preparing the script, mm-hmm. you, you told me that, that even though you couldn't overtly or, or explicitly share these things, people just knew. You and your other, the people that you traveled with made that sacrifice, went over and worked with folks because that was in your heart. So that's really cool. So let's talk about Bible verses a little bit. Anything that really stood out to you, things that spoke to you, that you clung to while you were over either on the world race for 11 months or in Syria that you'd just like to share? Sure. Um, so Ephesians 2.10 uh, really stuck out to me. Um, for the entire race, um, you know, it talks about that we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Um, so I definitely believe that we are called to a higher purpose. 
Um, I truly believe that work is worship, whether we're serving overseas or we're working in corporate America, that there's um, always work to be done for the kingdom. And it's just a matter of us being aware of the opportunities that, that you know, God provides us with. I also really love Titus 2.10 um, that talks about you work so that in every way you will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. So again, this idea that work, you know, it's easy to get caught up in the nine to five routine, chasing the American dream. And, you know, that's fine if you're working and still glorifying God through your work. Um, and so just being open to how God wants to use you wherever you're at and being present and wherever God's placed you in the day to day. Um, it, it's funny. One of the things we really focus on in the program here is an emphasis on purpose. Uh, the scripture mm-hmm. says the Lord has made everything for his own purposes, including people, mm-hmm. including you and me. And you sort of just honored. You were pulled to do something. You were worried about the money and these other issues. But you, you honored that call and things worked out incredibly well. And and I, I'm really a huge believer in that, that if you just really just follow your heart, you'll you'll find jobs that are a better match for you. You'll be happier. You'll be more productive, be more impactful. So I, I you know, commend you for going away like this and following the call. Um, want to make sure we have plenty of time for you to issue any kind of a, a challenge or a call to action for listeners. And it can be multiple things, whether it's how we view uh, the Syrians or, or you know, getting involved in the world race or whatever. What's, what's on your heart and what would you like to, to challenge people to do? Uh, well, I'd say first and foremost, just being present wherever you're at, um, always being open to what God has um, for you and always pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and following God and, and whatever he might have. As far as the world race, um, you know, I would say if that's something that you feel like God is calling you to, definitely check it out. And if you know, you're know you not between the ages of 21 and 35, you know, it's a great um, organization to support. You, know, you can go on the website and you can read blogs about world racers um, that are posting that are currently out on the field um, and they're currently fundraising. So if you know you see a certain racer in particular, you can always make a donation to support them as they fundraise while they're out there. And as far as the refugees go, you know, it's definitely something that's on my heart. And I think if you know there are refugees, you know, in our country right now, and there are so many great organizations out there that are supporting them um, and helping them to become established in the community. Um, and so I'd say that's something that you feel called to. There are organizations that are doing great things and welcoming them into society and helping them feel that that they belong here. You mentioned when we we talked that you were kind of broke your heart that uh, sort of you'd like to see the U.S. do more with the refugees and help out in more ways and and knowing that we're not doing that was didn't seem to sit well with you correct mm-hmm. yeah when to see Germany really take in so many refugees they did a wonderful job in having open doors and bringing them in and um, you know Canada is also doing a great job of having programs set up um, to help refugees kind of jump right in. You know, there are organizations that will teach them how to um, take the bus and use, you know, public transportation and, um, you know, show them where the grocery stores are and help their kids settle in at school. And, you know, I think there are great organizations in America too. And I think it's also just a matter of, you know, spreading the message that these are really great people that we're not, by letting more people in, we're not increasing the risk of, you know, terrorist attacks in our country. You know, if a terrorist wants to make an attack, to come in through the process that a refugee comes through um, would take way too long. It's way too difficult of a process. The screening is very intense. Um, And so by letting these people in, um, we're really showing our love to the least of these people that really need help during this time. What about your future plans? I mean, what do you, are you going to go on any more world races or any more of these trips? Or um, I don't have any plans right now um, to go on to go abroad for a trip, um, but I am looking at moving out to Southern California in the near future, and I'm really excited because there 
are a number of refugees that are getting resettled in uh, Southern California, specifically in San Diego. Um, And so the International Rescue Committee is one organization that's out there, and they're doing really great work um, in San Diego specifically. And so that's definitely an organization that I would love to get plugged in with. So you might be a California person soon. (laughs) I might be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all I can say is thank you so much for what you're doing. I mean, young people like you and what you're doing is just fantastic. It makes me feel better about the future Mm -hmm. of our country. Um, If listeners want to find out more about the World Race, uh, please check them out on the web at worldrace.org. And on Instagram, it, is that a hashtag, 11N11? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm not really hip on social media. So so 11N11, lots of pictures there of world racers. Uh, we'll also be posting information on our Facebook and Twitter pages. This is Ed Mellick signing off from Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night and be sure to tune into Grace. Grace.